This morning we will be looking at the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19. If you want to go ahead and start turning there. We are looking at this account in the Gospel of Luke because he has included something in his account that the other three Gospels don't. And that's actually the last words that Jesus says on Palm Sunday. Um, And what we see is it's actually a, a kind of confusing account in that there's this big celebration going with the palms waving and cheering and and singing and praising. And yet in the middle of this celebration, we see Jesus weeping. He's weeping over Israel. And so we're going to take a look at that today. Uh, To understand exactly why Jesus would be weeping in the middle of this celebration of His coming, we have to understand a little bit more about this Gospel and why it was written uh, so Luke is the author, and um, he was a doctor, or at the very least, he was very well educated. Um, and his emphasis throughout his gospel was focusing on the tender love, sympathy, and compassion of Jesus. You see a lot of parables that show his love for the downtrodden and those that have been oppressed, those that have been hurt or who are suffering. We see many accounts of healing, of uh, making people um, healings. And so we see just this emphasis on this tender love and sympathy, which makes sense that we would see Christ weeping, why he would include this aspect there. Uh, and again, only Luke records this account. And what we see is that Jesus is weeping over the consequences that he knows his people are going to face for rejecting him. The very people that are cheering and praising and singing to him are going to reject him just a few days later. And he's weeping over this account. So we will uh, read, we'll, I'm going to read, uh, we're going to read our text uh, in three different sections. So if you want to just keep your Bibles open. But before we do that, let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Jesus. That he is a, a, a sympathetic God. That he is our Savior and has compassion on us and tender love. Well, I pray that you would be with us today as we open your word. That you would open our ears and soften our hearts so we would not simply hear your word but we would receive it this morning in the name of jesus we pray amen so luke chapter 19 we're going to start in verse 28 and when he had said these things he went on ahead going up to jerusalem and when he drew near to bethphage and bethany at the mount that is called olivet he sent two of his disciples saying Go into the village in front of you where one entering you will find, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying this colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So we have his triumphal entry when he walks in and all these things. So there's three things that we want to look at here to help us understand a little bit more of the next part with Jesus weeping. Um, so this account is very important and it all actually hinges around the animal that Jesus is riding in because it tells us three very specific things about what's happening. Number one, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, part of our call to worship this morning was from Zechariah chapter 9, which is the prophecy of how Jesus was going to arrive, arrive in Jerusalem. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this was a this was stated many many years before. One of the many accounts in which Jesus' life matched up with the prophecies, the predictions of what Jesus would do and what he would come to do. So number one, we see this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. But number two, there's something very important being declared by the fact that he is riding a donkey. Jesus is being declared and being recognized as the king. And not just the king, but the Messiah. The, um, uh, the donkey was actually a royal animal. We don't always think of uh, this beast of burden as being a royal animal, but he was. It was used, um, it was ridden by kings and by their family. But it was used in a very specific purpose. It was a sign that the king was coming in peace. That this king was coming to, in the name of peace, to bring peace. We see an example of this in the Old Testament after King Solomon is declared to be king. He rides in on a donkey. Um, if it were a time or an expression of war, he would be on a horse. And this is important because we're going to see that this flies in the face of what the Israelites were expecting from Jesus. So he is being declared the king. Uh, and we also see when they lay their cloaks on the donkey. This is also another statement of his kingship. A king never rode without a saddle. It was undignified. It was below a king deserved to have a big, ornate saddle, so he did not ride on the, on the bare back of the animal. Well, they did not have a saddle. And so you see the disciples taking off their clothing and laying it on the donkey so that he, the king, does not ride on this animal without. Now this, we can kind of just overlook this, but this is really a, a show of genuine affection that the disciples have for Jesus. This is, they're, they're taking off their clothing to put this on this donkey. It's a very vulnerable thing to be without your clothing, without the outer layer. It's even being an embarrassing thing. 
So we see this is actually a very kind, affectionate, adoring act that the disciples did for Jesus. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. So number one, fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy. Number two, Jesus being declared and recognized as the king. But this donkey, as we mentioned, shows why Jesus was coming. He is a king of peace. This donkey was ridden as a sign of peace, not a war horse. Now, the Israelites, the the disciples who were praising him, wanted peace. But they didn't understand fully the peace that Jesus was bringing. If we go back to Zechariah, the very next verse, Zechariah 9, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And we have a very small statement here, but peace to the nations. And this brings forward the part of the reason that Jesus was weeping. And it has to do with Israel's understanding of what this peace was. So Israel, at large, misunderstood the nature of Christ's kingship. You see this being played out even in the discussions of the disciples over and over and over again. That they were expecting the Messiah, promised in the Old Testament, to be a a political ruler. A ruler of war who was coming to establish an earthly kingdom, an earthly Jewish kingdom, in which the Jewish people would rule. They see that this this statement of, of peace in heaven... Their thought is that there's finally peace in heaven. There's peace between God and Israel. And He is coming to declare them kings of the world, essentially. So they had a very earthly understanding, not a heavenly understanding. We see this in the account we heard this recently of, of James and John, whose mother came to them and said, declare that James and John would sit one at your left and one at your right. They have in their mind, his, two of his very own disciples want to have political power. They want to have that authority over the earth. But this is not just a, a, a struggle that the disciples had. This is something that you've seen all throughout the history of the Old Testament. Think back to the, in Judges when they, the Israelites demanded a king. They had judges who led them, but God was their king. God would lead them. But they began to demand a king. And not just any king, but they wanted a king just like all the other nations. They had a very worldly, earthly understanding of the kingdom of God. And they were not satisfied with having an unseeable God as their leader. So they demanded a king just like the other nations. And that's how we see playing out the dynamic of Saul and David. Saul was declared king according to the will and desire of men. He was strong. He was powerful. He was mighty. He was what the world embodies as power. But he was not a man of God. And it did not work. It was destructive. And then we have David. Who is brought, who is a man after God's own heart, 
or a man according to God's will, God's calling, who led from righteousness and humility, though a frail and broken sinful humility, a humility nonetheless. So this is a desire that the Israelites have struggled with for a long time, this earthly kingdom. And what we see here is this is why these hosannas, these praises, will quickly turn to a cry of crucify Him. These very people who are stripping off their clothing and throwing it on the ground for the donkey to walk on are the very same people who are so angry and so filled with hatred that they're yelling, crucify Him, crucify Him. How could that switch happen so quickly in just a few matter of days? Well, here's what's going on. The notion of Jesus coming, of this Messiah coming and establishing a political kingdom was because they were over, uh, under the Romans. The Romans had authority over them and they wanted to shed that authority over them. He was supposed to come and flip that around and make them powerful and put Rome under their control. But he didn't do that. Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to be humble. He came to die on the cross. He failed them in their mind. They were picturing this conqueror, this king that would come and and slash and kill and put them. But then he's arrested and he refuses to fight back and he refuses to stand up for himself even when he is falsely accused. Their hatred is so complete that even as Pilate is pleading with them, saying he gives them the option, we can free Barabbas or we can free Jesus. It was, the, it was the, the tradition each year during that time that they would free one. Now, Barabbas was a murderer. He was a man that thoroughly deserved to be behind bars. But their hatred of this man, of Jesus, who they were once praising, was so complete, they said, let the murderer out, kill Jesus. This is a deep-rooted heart issue. This is not simply just a, 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 a rejection of what Jesus was there to bring for them. And this is because their hearts are revealed in their rejection. Their hearts are revealed in the way that they have rejected the Messiah. Jesus offered them true peace. He offered them a true peace which is a right relationship with God. We understand in the Gospel that sin, the punishment for sin, is death. And all people have sinned and are worthy, are, are worthy of receiving the wrath of God, the death that comes from this. But Jesus came to take that wrath to die on the cross in which our sin was literally put upon Him and paid for in the death of His body on the cross. But not only that, we are declared righteous. We receive His perfect obedience so that when, Christ, when the God the Father looks at us, He sees His perfect obedience. And we receive peace with God. 
No longer recipients of the wrath of God. No longer we will ever receive the wrath of God and be punished in that way. That peace with God is so complete that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, not only do we not have to worry about our suffering, our earthly suffering, but we can rejoice in our earthly suffering because we know there is nothing in this world, there is nothing on this earth that can strip away the greatest peace we have ever experienced, which is peace with God. And we know this in our mind and sometimes in our heart, but sometimes it takes something drastic to remind us of that. This is where suffering can often play a part. Suffering, be it a severe sickness, cancer, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, a loss of earthly security. What purpose does suffering have in this and that it strips away the things that we think are making us comfortable? It strips away the things that we think are leaving us with a sense of peace and reminds us that true peace only comes from that relationship, that peace with God. It's very easy to fall into a physical and earthly mindset of peace, which would include physical comfort, financial security, friends, relationship security, all good things, but not ultimate things. Not life-saving things. And so here's what we see in the hearts of the Israelites. And not all of them. There are many, many Israelites who, who had faith in Jesus as well. But they rejected this true peace because they wanted the earthly peace. And this includes many of Jesus' disciples. Even His closest disciples. After Jesus was arrested... And killed, they walked away. Because they, they believed that he had been defeated. That he was not able to accomplish what he had thought to do. So they chose to rather than accept the peace that Jesus offered, to choose, they chose to pursue the world's definition of peace. Which can be boiled down to three things. Prosperity, power, and personal authority. This is what the world declares as true peace. Prosperity, power, and personal authority. Let's let's look at verse 41. This is is Jesus as he's he's looking, as, as he's surrounded by this crowd of people who are praising and rejoicing. And you see that they've come to meet him. As he's coming down the mountain, they've come out to meet him. And that's because they've heard the stories of him raising Lazarus from the dead. They heard about blind Bartimaeus, or Bart, as we heard from Pastor Wheat. They heard about him. They wanted to celebrate this new Messiah. And as they're celebrating, and, and a party is going on around him, this is what Jesus says. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from you. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
He's weeping. He's burdened. He's feeling this turmoil that's happening because they're misunderstanding what He has come to do. Close enough to touch Jesus, but an eternity away from Him because of the purpose that He was there. And you see, He strikes very much at that desire they have for a physical kingdom. Saying, this physical kingdom that you want cannot give you anything. And in fact, you're going to be physically destroyed. And He actually predicts or prophesies of the Romans coming and tearing everything down a few years later in the year 70. And so we see here, he, he sees their hearts. He's saying, if only you knew what I was here to do. He knew what was coming for them. He knew that they would choose prosperity, power, and personal authority. And I think this is why we actually see the very next verse. Right after we see a weeping Jesus, we see His power. Look at verse 45. This, this is kind of picking up the next day. And He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, this account is, is very short and very quick of what Jesus is doing, but the other Gospels give accounts of Jesus flipping tables and making whips and driving people out. And so we get kind of this juxtaposition of the weeping, sympathetic Jesus to the powerful, driving out anger, righteous anger of Jesus. And it's because we see at the very root this worldly sense of peace that they're trying to pursue. So let's look at this. Number one, prosperity. This notion of, of, of being financially set. So it was a very common thing for there to be merchants uh, near the temple to sell animals for sacrifice. This was right before Passover when many of the Israelites would come and they would make sacrifices. It was a part of the uh, procedures that happened. Did the lights just blink or am I going crazy? Did anybody else see that? Okay, I see a few people nodding. Okay, thank you. I didn't sleep a lot last night, so I was a little nervous. Um, so it's normal to have merchants there because if you have to travel a long way, it's a very difficult thing to bring an unblemished animal with you the whole way and keep it unblemished. And so it's a very normal practice for them to sell these animals. Now, there are a lot of accounts that give us a clue of what was going on. Um, you can think of, of supply and demand. There was probably a bit of price gouging going on. People had to have a sacrifice. You could charge whatever you wanted. Uh, there's also reports of, of high exchange rates, charging an unethical amount of, of interest or, or exchange rate when they had to change money from different areas there. And you see what Jesus is saying there. He's saying this is supposed to be a, a house of prayer, but you're using it to drive a profit. You're using it not to worship God and not to help others worship God, but to drive a profit. 
this notion of prosperity. And then we have this other notion of power. And this is really getting at the heart of what's going on with the Israelites at the root of their rejection. So in the temple, there is a very specific structure and you're only allowed to go in certain areas accounting on who you are as a person. So you had the very inter part where only the high priest went once a year. And then you had the area where only the priest could go. And then you had another area where only Israelites could go. And then you had the courtyard, which was open to all people, all nations, Gentiles, Jews alike. Well, what we found is that these merchants had set up in the courtyard. Not on the outside of the temple, but actually probably in this courtyard. And you can imagine just the environment of having all these animals for sale. It's loud. There's probably haggling and, and, and screaming and there's animals making sounds and animals making smells and all sorts of things. This is not an environment that is conducive to worship. And here's what we see happening. That was where the Gentiles were supposed to worship. So not only do we see possibly these ill-gotten prophets, these merchants coming in, but we see they're robbing other nations of their worship. You see the attitude that they have towards other people. They've taken the grace of God, the, the fact that they are the chosen people of God, and turned that into a reason to feel superior over other nations. And so you had this notion of superiority or power or, the, or, or the, a, a justified reason to feel better about yourself over those other people, those unclean people. And you see just the smugness of that attitude by having all these sales going on in the courtyard. And that's where you see the root of the issue there is they wanted the peace that God could bring, that Jesus could bring, but they didn't like the fact that it was the peace for all nations. And ultimately, deep down inside, there was also the personal authority that they struggled with. Personal authority. The right to say and decide what's good for you. The right to do and say as you desire without anyone telling you what to do. This is what the world says is true peace. You do you. Let others do them. No one should tell you what to do. No one should tell you what's right and wrong. That's up to you to decide. That's not a new attitude. You can trace that back all the way to the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Is that not how the serpent tempted them? Did God really say you can't eat of, that, of any of the fruit in the garden? He's saying, did God really keep goodness from you? Why would he do that? That's unreasonable. You decide. You pursue that happiness. You pursue that completeness, that fulfillment. Deep down at the root of our struggle is our desire to be sovereign over our own lives. 
to be sovereign over our own thoughts, to be sovereign over our own desires. And we struggle with that. We don't like to be told what to do. Some areas it's okay, but some areas it's not okay. And we see this in the accounts of the gospel, especially with the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not want to be challenged by Jesus. They had established themselves as righteous. They had set up a way in which they were superior. Who was this guy to quote Scripture to them and tell them how they were wrong about Scripture? They were the smart ones. They had it all together. Who's this guy telling me we didn't get it right? Israel didn't want Rome to tell them what to do. They wanted to tell Rome what to do. But Jesus said, I am the way. Not a way. Not one of the ways. He says, the way. He pulled no punches on that. He said, only those who come through me can go to the Father. Deep down in the root of our hearts, the struggle we feel is a desire for personal authority. The personal, we want to be God. We want to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. And Jesus knew this. He knew the condition of their hearts. He knew that they did not want a Savior who would submit. But this is the true peace. A true peace can only come from a dying Savior who died for you. But Jesus came in the name of grace. Jesus came to forgive. Jesus came to die for the unlovely, to make them lovely. And we see this in the disciples. His disciples abandoned him, like I said. But when they saw the beauty and glory and power of the resurrected Jesus, they were changed. And not only did they not flee from Jesus, their love and devotion and appreciation for the grace that Jesus had bought for them Almost every single one of them died as martyrs. Died horrible deaths for the name of Jesus Christ. This is what Palm Sunday is about. This is why we praise God. This is why we praise Jesus. Not because He's going to make us comfortable here on earth, but because He gives us peace with our Heavenly Father. Here's my challenge to us today. To what limit is Christ the King of your life? How much do we give to the authority of Jesus Christ and to the Bible? What are we clinging to? What is it in this world that we're not willing to give to the authority of God? What is it that we're not willing to lose that's keeping us from the, receiving the true peace, which is an utter dependence 
on God the Father. When we understand the love that Jesus has for us, that He died for us, He went to the point of death for us, how would not His Word be true and good for us? The disciples saw the power of Jesus crucified and raised, and they gave their lives for Him. Let us give our hearts and minds wholly to the God of peace. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You sent Jesus. That from the beginning it was Your plan to pay for our sin. I thank You that You are a God of grace and that You come to us. You forgive us when we do not deserve it. And You died for those who hated You so that You could have a relationship with them. Lord, I pray that You would be with us, that You would speak into our hearts, pry away the things that we are grasping onto so desperately to be our comfort, to be our peace, but only leave us more broken. Lord, may we fully understand how truly forgiven and eternally loved we are that we may be humble for You and share of the glory that we have received. Lord, be with us this week. May You be glorified by all that we do as we worship You and are reminded of what You have done for us on the cross. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.